It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano a funny thing happened about three years ago it was my birthday and my wife and i are not really into getting one another elaborate birthday gifts but on this particular birthday she gave me a book and it's a funny thing because if you've listened to this show you know that my office is just overwhelmed with books we have more books than we have shelf space and i'm acquiring books at a rate that is much faster than I can ever read them. And that was true three years ago. Not as true as it is these days, but still true. And I was quite surprised when uh, my wife gifted me this book. I said, I'm so perplexed by this, honey. Well, what are you giving me this book for? She said, I know you're into gambling, and I know you're into shady things, and I know you're into memoirs, and I heard an interview that this author did, and I haven't read the book yet, but I could just tell that by the way this author described the events in this book, you were going to absolutely love it. Well, it turns out I married her for a reason, because she certainly had my number three years ago. I uh, picked up a book called The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. It's terrific. It is an incredible memoir, but the characters in this book are so rich, so vivid, that at times you feel like you're reading a novel. And uh, it's really a, a terrific, terrific book, but it's been a couple of years since I read the book. So I thought to myself, now that we're airing in Detroit, very pleased by the way to be on AM 910 WFDF, great radio station in Detroit. I said, well, let me try and reach out to the author again, see if she's willing to come on. And it turns out not only was she willing, but she would make herself available at this ungodly hour of the morning. So I was a little concerned. It's been three years since I read the book. Maybe I won't remember a lot of the details. So I started leafing through the book again. And lo and behold, I found that as soon as I started looking through some of these events and some of the incidents described in the book, I remembered absolutely everything. The book is 
phenomenal, and I am very, very pleased to be joined by Brigitte M. Davis, the author of uh, multiple books, including a lot of no- a couple of novels, director of an award-winning feature film, a professor at Baruch College, and the author of a terrific memoir called The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. Brigitte, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh, thanks for having me, Frank. I'm really excited to be here. So I think before we get into your story and your mom's story, it would be helpful to people to provide a little bit of context. Uh, For starters, what was Detroit like in the late 60s, early 70s? What was it like in general and what was it like for black families in particular? Well, you know, it was the Motor City, right? And so the idea was that, hey, this is the heart of the auto industry. There are great jobs for folks who want to work in the industry, in the factories, et cetera. You can thrive. You can have a really uh, good life in Detroit. But that wasn't the case for everyone, even though a lot of black folks migrated north to the city from the South to get those factory jobs. Not everyone was lucky enough to get one. You know, it had a lot to do with some systemic racism, to be honest. And so folks found themselves in Detroit and helping to shape the city and make it what it became, but not always engaged in and participating in, taking advantage of, benefiting from the industry. Uh, And so people like my family, they had to start thinking about other possibilities that they could really make a way out of no way in this in this, uh, you know, pretty incredible American city. And, you, and your, your your mom certainly uh, did that. And this may seem like a funny question to anybody that's listening who might be over a certain age. But if you're younger than, say, 50, I don't think this is a silly question at all. The kind of subtitle of your book is My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. Now, a lot of folks have grown up in the era of the lottery, the New York State Lottery, Powerball, mm-hmm. Mega Millions. They don't necessarily know what numbers are. What is or what was numbers? I mean, it's a great question because you're right. It's a generational shift. The numbers basically were a precursor to the lottery that everyone knows. Folks don't realize this, but before the 1970s, especially in Detroit, specifically in Michigan, lotteries were illegal. There weren't any. And so there were people who still wanted to play lotteries. And so their option was this underground, informal, and yes, illegal lottery system that had existed since the 1920s. And so it it really operated as a kind of shadow economy. A lot of people didn't know it existed, but a lot of people did. And it had the same sort of structure that you have come to know lotteries to be. You know, you pick your digits, and if they come out in that particular combination, you can win very often 500 to 1 uh, so that the uh, so that the uh, winnings were pretty lucrative and attractive, just like with today's lottery. 
today's lottery obviously is regulated by the government. Uh, the numbers right. or the kind of sister lottery game of, uh, of policy, which I know is a little different, they weren't right. regulated by the government. They were illegal yeah. to participate in. Were right. these games, not only in Detroit, but to the best of your knowledge, anywhere, anywhere else in the country, were these numbers games honest or were people just taking folks' money and ripping them off? You know, to say they were being ripped off is too very simplistic of a way to characterize this. As I called it again, a complete informal economy. A lot was happening. Uh, People weren't just de facto being ripped off. They were, most cities had devised a method so that the numbers were, had integrity. You couldn't really guess what they were going to be beforehand. Um, and uh, people tended to, for the most part, to pay out those winnings when when customers hit. So it fundamentally worked. Was it all completely above board and legit? Of course not, mm-hmm. because there was nothing monitoring it, as you said. So there were going to be some level of risk in terms of, oh, am I going to be paid for this hit that I just got? But by and large, it worked. And one of the reasons it worked is that it was so much more than a lottery system. You know, state lotteries are basically set up to just take people's money. <laughs> Whereas the numbers was in place largely to replace, to replace what governments were not providing for the most part, black Americans. So it was giving people say, actual resources to open small businesses. It was giving people loans to buy homes. People were getting resources to be able to go to college. Who? How is that happening? Because the big numbers men were race men who were doing more than just being, you know, being at the helm of mm-hmm. a numbers operation. They felt it was their obligation to also really uplift the race and provide resources in all these myriad ways. So they they were really um, philanthropists of their time, and they were looked up to in just that way. They were pillars of the community. So in a lot of ways, not only was the numbers a lottery, not only was it a, a philanthropy system, but it was also sort of a, a banking system for unbanked communities as well. There you go. Absolutely. Now we know about redlining. Now people are, and, and you know, the media is talking about how blacks were kept out of the real estate market. But back then, it was just a understood given that you couldn't get a bank loan to buy a home. And very often, it was the numbers man, or in my mom's case, the numbers woman, who provided that down payment money for you, or who would actually hold your loan and finance you know, a home for you. So it was also another example is that people don't realize that the NAACP and the National Urban League, these were fledgling organizations. And it was this infusion of money by numbers spin across the country. Detroit's the best example because that used to be the biggest chapter. Detroit had the biggest chapter of the NAACP at one time, largely due to the monies the numbersmen were um, infusing it with so that it could be the the pillar it needed to be to really jumpstart the civil rights movement. 
These are the parts of, you know, history that people just don't right. know about. Uh, no, that's why I, I knew very little about this before reading your book. By the way, people are just tuning in. We're talking with Brigitte M. Davis. Her book is The World According to Fanny Davis. It's a terrific book, which I highly recommend. And uh, uh, Brigitte, when did the numbers end as a regular way, a regular form of commerce that people were participating in? Did it end pretty much around the time that all these lotteries became legalized? Actually, no. In fact, there are pockets <laughs> of various communities across the country that still engage in the numbers. What have they done? They've modified the game to adjust to the legal lottery, just as my mother did at a pivotal moment when she saw that her own business was being usurped by the legal lottery and customers were opting to play that instead. She began to provide um, benefits that the legal lottery cannot provide that brought people back to her. But the biggest thing she did was she decided, hey, if you can't beat them, join them. I'm going to use the actual numbers, the actual winning numbers that the lottery produces as my winning numbers for my own numbers game. And that was ingenious. It was incredible how it saved her business. People, customers were like, oh, this is great. I can rely on what the number is. I can see the winners on the evening news, right? Um, And I can play with Fanny, someone I trust, someone who I know when I give her my money, it's going to actually circulate back to the community. I want to ask you a little bit about what some of those benefits were, but let me uh, backtrack. When did you realize as a little girl that your mother was involved in running numbers? I knew it right away because it was a home-based business, and so I saw her practice her, uh, you know, her business. She didn't hide it. She didn't go off to a room where no one could see her. It was a family business. My older siblings helped her out. From the time I can remember, you know, she was on the phone taking customers' bets when I was about to leave for school in the morning. And so the beauty, she told us early, she said to each of her children, this is a legitimate business. It just happens to be illegal. (laughs) And then she said... Then she said, understand in this country, everything legal is not just. Not all law, not all laws are right. And so the fact that something is legal doesn't necessarily determine whether it's morally right. Shipping can make or break a sale. So optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. 
and vice versa. Oh, that is for sure. I think people are gaining a whole new appreciation for that way of looking at the world, more so probably than uh, than ever. Obviously, if someone hits with uh, with numbers, they have to be paid out. How did your mom get to a point where she had the money to launch her own business, to run her own numbers racket? We're not just talking about taking numbers and reporting them to someone else, uh, a broader a broader numbers uh, game. She ran her own game. How did she get to that point? You're right. She did. She launched her business by borrowing $100 from her brother, my Uncle John, loaned her $100 in 1958, the same year that Barry Gordy borrowed $800 from his family to launch Motown Records. Wow. Same year. Uh, that's Same wild. Same year. <laughs> yeah. What a Same time year. to be in Detroit. Hey, uh, yeah. you, you write in your book that it was understood and reinforced at almost every opportunity that there was sort of a vow of silence about what it was that your mother did and uh, how you were to communicate or not communicate that to outsiders, right? Correct. We were, it was clear that we were to never talk about the family business. And I don't remember a time when we had to discuss it. It was just understood. It was just understood. It was what I was born into. And so I knew that that would put my mother at risk. It was never about shame. I wasn't keeping it a secret out of shame. It was the opposite of that. I was really proud of my mother and a little frustrated that I couldn't brag about her. But I I also knew that this, that her Safety was dependent upon my, as she liked to put it, not running my mouth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Did your mother ever get into legal trouble because she was running an illegal business? No, never. My mother was so smart about it. One of her ingenious approaches was to stay relatively small. She didn't have this belief that because I'm thriving, I have a customer base, people love me, and they did, I could just get as big as possible. She said, no, I want to be as big as I need to be to provide for my family and not bring attention to myself. What motivated you to write this book, to tell her story this many years after her passing? And look, you've written a number of other books, been very successful in other areas. What made you decide to write this book and tell this story? I just realized that in keeping her secret and being loyal to her, that that something was happening that I hadn't anticipated. I was starting to feel badly about keeping the secret as though I was ashamed and I wasn't. And I thought, well, actually I need to be able to let the world know what she accomplished. I need to get over my fear of revealing her secret and make my, my desire to share her incredible brilliance with the world more important to me than just, keeping that secret. And that's what happened. It became more important to me to um, to really share with everyone what this woman did to, to really overcome a societal limitation. I thought, you know, I know she's brilliant. 
people who love her know it, it's time for me to share this with others. And also I understood that this was such a, a, a dying industry that if I didn't tell the story, it would be lost to history. I guess your mom could be considered kind of a, a Jill of all trades. Not only was she running an illegal business, she was raising uh, children of various ages, which is very challenging. She was uh, helping care for your father, who was experiencing a number of health issues. I have a difficult time just having one child and being able to maintain a four-hour-a-day radio show. How did she manage, just lifestyle-wise, to balance all this? It's kind of like spinning plates. Yeah, and she also made sure she was exposing us to as much as possible and traveling. She was also writing a book, and then she went on to raise her grandson. Yeah. It's very impressive. Yeah. I know. And I don't even have an answer except that my mother never stopped to think about whether it was possible. That was her approach in life. How she just moved forward. She just thought, why not? Why Why not? Indeed. Uh, really, not? a woman with uh, incredible energy. Uh, the book is uh, The World According to Fanny Davis. I do suggest people check it out. Um, there's an interesting story about how she picked the numbers for the or how the numbers were selected for the numbers games that she ran. If you remember, how did she pick the numbers? How did she pick the winning numbers? Right, right. How did she pick the winning well, numbers? She, right. She didn't personally pick them in Detroit. There was a a method that involved a very convoluted mathematical calculation based on the uh, racing forms from various racetracks, both locally and across the country, so that those winning horse races with their various numbers were utilized to create this um, three-digit number each day that couldn't be replicated or anticipated. Um, and even though she knew how to do those calculations, most people didn't. It was really that convoluted. <laughs> yeah, it was it. really that convoluted. Yeah, that's a mathematical uh, Rube Goldberg device. The, yeah. <laughs> as you described, she was doing well with her business, but she certainly had a lot of other things going on. You discovered that she had taken her GED just a week before becoming a grandmother. Why? Why did she go back for her GED uh, when she clearly was doing okay, providing for a family and busy raising all these children, becoming a grandchild? Why get her GED? Right. You know, it's funny because her her sister says, Fanny graduated from high school. She couldn't believe that she did that. And I... I wonder as well, and the only thing I can imagine is that my mother was, um, she was a perpetual learner. Uh, You talk about, you know, the books in your office. You should have seen the books in our house when I was growing up and the wide range of subject matter of those books. My mother was a voracious reader and learner, and she was curious about life. And one of the things that she had always wanted was to go to college. But, you know, being a young woman coming up in the 40s and 50s, she married young, like so many did, and she started a family early. She never got to go to college. And so she started, she took that GED, and in her 40s, she started taking college classes. Wow. Uh, That's something. I noticed you did not follow her into a life of crime. You instead chose a uh, a life of writing. How come? (laughs) 
Well, she said to me on more than one occasion, I am doing this so you don't have to. And she took those resources from the numbers and she paid for my private college education. Wow. Yes, she did. And one of the most beautiful things for her was to see me become a college professor. One of the things, I mean, yeah. my books, any of those things, when people say, what would your mother think about this book you wrote? Would she be proud of you? Would she love it? I, I was like, probably, but my mother couldn't have been more proud of me than when I became a college professor. I, I can imagine. I can imagine. Yeah. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, that you mentioned is when her numbers game was coexisting at the same time as the Michigan State Lottery, that she offered some benefits that the lottery didn't provide. What were those? Yes, she did. First, she offered a better payout ratio. So the state lottery was offering a 500 to one payout. You know, you bet for a dollar, you win, you get $500. She said, I'm going to offer a 600 to one payout. Mm. So she offered a better payout. Then she said, they require you to play for at least a certain amount of money. I have no, no, no such requirement. You can pay for a quarter if you want to. Also, they capped in the beginning, they would cap how much a person could bet. She said, I don't have those caps. You can bet more if you want to. Also, she decided when you win, I will pay you the next day by noon. The state used to send a check out, you know, that could take a while. Uh, so she figured out all these ways to really make her make playing with her more attractive. Never mind that she knew your name. She was going to ask you how your children were. If you needed to play on credit, she would let you. As then you played your numbers all week, and then at the end of the week, you paid your tab. Well, it's yeah. uh, certainly a lot of a lot more than the lottery is willing to work with you on. That's for sure. You, um, you know, obviously, so much of the story of your mom and your family in general involves your mother being involved in an illegal activity in order to uh, advance your family and kind of preserve or advance a middle class lifestyle. I- I've spoken with yeah. some old school mafia members or family members of mafia members who can tell the same story. I think there are a lot of folks these days that might be involved in an illegal business, whatever it might be, that say they're doing the same thing that uh, that your mom was doing. But would you tell them that this is an effective strategy for upward social mobility? I would say that it is quintessentially American. That's what I've come to learn. So many people wrote to me from several different immigrant communities telling me that their parents or grandparents did the exact same thing when they first got to this country to get a foothold. And and so I'm not going to place a judgment on it. I'm just going to say that impulse is understandable. Everyone wants to try to get a foothold so that the next generation can do better. 
I, I love that uh, lack of judgment, and uh, we have a lot of listeners, no, no joke, that are uh, listening in prison or in jail right now, and I know they're applauding your every word in that sentence. Uh, last question, uh, Bridgette. We're airing in Detroit, but, you know, I've never been to a Detroit. I'm uh, um, oh. a born and bred New Yorker. I'd very much like to go. If I know you're a New Yorker these days. How does Detroit compare to New York City? What are the key cultural differences? Well, you know, it's an interesting thing because Detroit is really uh, attracting people anew. In fact, I have more than one friend who has left New York and returned home to live in Detroit because it's filled with opportunity in a way it hasn't been in some time. But even beyond that, there is um, people know when you're a Detroiter, you're tough, you're straightforward. You have a sense of self. You you have a lot of city pride, and you've seen you've seen what it means to be part of a place that birthed two of the most extraordinary American industries in history. This one city, and, the, and the, someone the, said. If the, someone said, "Is it in the water?" <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, the two being uh, cars and music. That's right. Yeah, and no, it's uh, something to be said. Do you find that the that lack of uh, do you find that kind of what I'll, I'll call city patriotism or city pride is not as prevalent in a city like New York? I have never witnessed city pride in the way that I experienced it in Detroit. Anywhere else, I'll be honest. That's interesting. Uh, that's... And people respond that way, too. They go, oh, you're from Detroit. Or another Detroiter will connect immediately around the fact that you're from Detroit. There's something about it. Well, Bridgette Davis, I uh, very much enjoyed the book. I'm looking forward to checking out some of your other work as well. Uh, if people haven't read this, they should. It's called The World According to Fanny Davis, My Mother's Life in the Detroit Numbers. Its author, Bridgette M. Davis, has been my guest. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. This was indeed. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.